together to Acts chapter, that would be take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. And uh, we come again to this section, I think we read it last week, we never got here, so we'll come back again. I've cut out a big chunk of the reading that you'll find in the bulletin because we're not going to get there tonight. And I'm just hoping we can get through what we've got this evening. And I think if we were looking for a context for what I'm going to talk about this evening from this chapter, it, is, it goes something like this. We, we very often, I think, in our modern Western world particularly, we think the Western world is all the world there is. It's a fraction of the world's population, but we tend to see it through our own eyes. And one of the things we see in our Western world is the individualism that kind of marks Christianity. Me in my small corner, as it were, uh, just Jesus and me, it used to be a song we sang, just Jesus and me for each tomorrow. didn't sound like that, but it was a song that, those were the words, uh, that somehow or other the Christian life is a kind of the Lord and me and no one else. And church, institutional church, Christianity uh, as an institution in, in the world is regarded as an embarrassment uh, at the very least and even worse at times. And of course, when you come to look at a book like the book of Acts, which describes the work of the risen Lord Jesus in the world, uh, finishing off, as it were, completing the work that he came to do through the apostles before launching the church on its own into the world, you discover that Christianity is not individualistic. It isn't just about me. Being a solo Christian is not really an option that what we find in the book of Acts is that God is creating a community of people, a church, a, a nation, a holy nation, an Israel of God. He's chosen out of the world, called together, called to be his very own people. And what we've seen particularly as we've come to the 15th chapter of Acts is that not only has God given us a gospel to preach to people, good news to share with others, but he's given us the means of getting the gospel out to the world, that is in the, by way of mission, but also of keeping the gospel right, getting the gospel right, as well as getting the gospel out. And what he has done to defend the gospel is to create the institutional church. That's really what we find happening throughout the book of Acts, but here particularly in the chapters that surround chapter 15. We've seen the appointment of elders in all the churches, and one of their tasks is to keep people, to help people continue in the faith, that is, in the gospel, in the doctrine that they've received. We find this great assembly in chapter 15, this council, and we find it forming a decision. And what we find the church doing here in a corporate form is setting the tone for other events like this that will happen in the succeeding centuries as. Large groups of Christian people have come together in an organized and institutional way to address issues and to seek the mind of Christ. So let me put it in language like this. Let me say that what Jesus has formed in the world is a, is a commonwealth of people, a nation, a holy nation of people created by the triune God, not created by us, we don't make it up, and he's given to that community, this new nation, he's given this nation a constitution. Now, we living in Philadelphia are very aware of constitutions and nations. You just go along to the Constitution Center there, and 
and having come recently to Philadelphia and having lots and lots of family and friends from the UK who visit here, can I just say that I have been there so often I can give the talk myself. And I can tell you all you need to know about the Constitution of the United States because I've heard it so many times. And it's a great document and it's a, an amazing vision of creating a country uh, in the terms in which the original founding fathers had the vision. But the church has a constitution. It has a constitutional document. Here it is. This is a covenant document given by the Lord to the church on which is founded the apostolic prophetic word on which is founded and built this, this church that God is creating in the world. And what is one of the reasons for giving us this constitution and for creating a way by which this constitution can be can be referred to, can be explained, can be applied and interpreted in particular situations by the elders of the church, is that it is what this constitution stands for that will be constantly under attack throughout this age. Constantly under attack. One of the features of this age is the ongoing, continual, never-ceasing tribulation of the church that is marked by false teaching. We've noticed that in the last couple of weeks. Those who have been following the series can virtually rehearse my lines for me. But I need to repeat it to you this evening that that is the fundamental picture that is being painted here. And so false teaching emerges. No sooner is the church appointing elders specifically to address that issue, as we saw at the end of chapter 14, than in chapter 15 you have the very first attack on the gospel. And it comes from a group of people, Pharisees, who had been converted to Christianity, an internal controversy within the church that has led to an overture from local churches and delegates being sent to Jerusalem to consult the church more widely. And the issue is this. Do Gentiles have to become Jews to become Christians? Is it Jesus plus the law equals salvation? And what we found them doing as we, we look at this chapter, and let me just review what we find them doing, is this. We find them forming, reaching a view, a common view. We find them formula, formulating a principle. And then we find them encouraging the churches. Let me tease that out. First of all, we find them reaching a view. And our question tonight is, how did they reach this view together on this matter? We're told that it was the apostles and the elders who deliberated on the matter. And one of the things that we've been led to see as we've gone through the book of Acts is that the apostles are absolutely unique in the church. We don't have apostles today like they did back then. These apostles were the foundation on which the church is being built. They belong to the beginning. And in the book of Acts, they are an extension of the Lord Jesus himself. He had said this over and over again. People who receive the apostles, receive him. People who don't listen to the apostles, don't listen to him. He had told them that in the earliest days, that if they were rejected, if their message was rejected, then those people would be rejected. The apostles are utterly unique. They are an extension of the risen Lord Jesus rule and reign over his church in the world. 
So the apostles are unique. But what we discover as we read Acts 15 is that the apostles are not using their uniqueness. They don't at any point pull rank. In fact, in this chapter, we find them acting like elders, like the other elders who are non-apostles, who don't have the signs and wonders to prove that they've been with the risen Lord Jesus and seen him alive and been commissioned by him. They act with him, with, with the other elders together as a body to arrive at a view concerning the matters at hand. And this is how they form their view. This is how they reach their view. They reflect both on what the apostolic word was that has been spoken previously to this, and they reflect on what the prophetic scriptures had to say. You can see that if you read the first part of the chapter. That's how they arrived at their view. In other words, what they're doing is they're reflecting on the prophetic scriptures of the Old Covenant, the Hebrew scriptures, and they're reflecting on the apostolic teaching of the New Covenant, which we today call, of course, our New Testament. It hasn't been formed yet. It's in the process of formation. The apostles are giving the teaching. The church is receiving the teaching verbally. Already letters have been written. The letter to the Galatians has been written before this chapter even comes about, the incident comes about here. So the New Testament part of that constitutional document is already, already being formed. And how these elders, these apostles and elders, arrive at their decision in this chapter is by reflecting on previously given revelation. They don't give new revelation. You'd expect the apostles would just say, well, guys, you know, we actually have a direct word from the Lord Jesus and it, we can do the signs and wonders to prove it and you've seen us do those things. Here's what Jesus says. They, they don't do that here. Why? Because they're setting down a precedent here. They're setting down a precedent for the future of the church. And they're saying in the future of the church, this is what you will have to do. And the apostles are there adding the weight of their authority to that of the elders in the church on this occasion so that in the future we know that we are to do what they did. They reflect on the apostolic and prophetic word to come up with a conclusion. Because you see, this constitution given to us by the prophets and the apostles is a magisterial document. That is, the way the word magisterial is used, the people in authority, people who have, have kind of some clout in the community, people who have a say in the way we live our lives, the magistrate. It has a magisterial impact on the church. You and I don't have, even together in our assemblies we don't have. All we have is a ministerial responsibility. In other words, we take that word, that founding document, and we reflect on it. We look at the storyline of the scripture. We look at the conclusions drawn from it by the prophets and by the apostles and by the Lord Jesus. We reflect on those things. We interpret those things. We apply those things. But we never add to or subtract from the original founding document. There are no amendments to this constitution. It remains unamended because it is God's final word. Now that's, 
That's how they handled things there. So when you come down to verse 19 and and, uh, James, who isn't an apostle, by the way, he's just an ordinary elder and he's chairing the meeting, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The word for judgment there, my judgment, is a solemn, emphatic word. It reflects backwards in the passage to verses 10 and 11. Let me give you a literal translation from the Greek of verses 10 and 11. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we believe in order to be saved just as they do. In other words, here is the the solution to the question. The question was, do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? Is it Jesus plus Moses equals salvation? They say it's Jesus alone that saves. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that puts us in a right relationship with God. So, says James, reflecting back to that original premise of the argument, which has been supported in the debate that has gone on in the assembly, he says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, the church's judgment is shaped by the Word of God, and it reflects what the Word of God teaches, and it establishes an official dogma of the church, that is, a church doctrine, a doctrine of the church of God, rather than one that's been articulated in a verse in the Bible. And God gave pastors and teachers as gifts to the church so that we may not be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but that we might be able to articulate clearly what the Bible says. Now here's one of the issues that emerges. It is usually heretics or schismatics who come along quoting Bible verses to support their interpretation. That is very often heretics who come along and they say, Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and they say, do you have one verse that supports the Trinity? You ever been cornered by a JW at the door? Of course, if you knew it was a JW at the door, you wouldn't open the door in the first place. And just what you need is what we have in our house. We didn't put it in there. It was there when we came. We have this camera. And it tells you who's at the front door. And it's great. So if you come to our door and we don't answer, it's because we've seen you. <laughs> no, I would never do that to you. But if you look like a JW, I might do that to you. So don't dress up. Just dress the way you are. And you'll be fine. We'll never take you for a JW the way you are. Or a Mormon for that matter because you're not well enough dressed. Anyway, that's another, another matter. Usually, heretics go down this line of uh, wanting Bible verses for you to throw in order to support their position. And and they resist the use of language that isn't in the Bible. You find people say this. The emergent church people say this kind of thing. We don't like the language of the Trinity, the language of the church. The church uses language like triune, trinity, and so on, to describe God. We don't like that language, they say, because it's not in the Bible. And this is important. Because people who make that position, take that position, of course, don't understand the nature of a covenant document. They don't understand the nature of a constitution. That a constitution has to be interpreted the way you interpret the legal constitution. That's why we have, as part of the 
the makeup of the structure of our nation, not only an executive branch and a legislative branch, but we have a legal branch. We have a judicial branch of government. And their task is to interpret the Constitution and apply it in specific instances. And that is why in ancient Israel it was the elders at the gate who did this. This is why in the church it is the elders whose task it is to handle the Constitution and interpret it for the church. Not only the elders of the local church like ours, but the wider church to which we belong. Well, that's what these people are doing. And the Westminster Confession puts it like this. That everything necessary for doctrine and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture. So when you come to the Bible, it's not just whether there's a verse. It's does the whole, the whole helps us to understand the parts. The parts help us to understand the whole. You have to look at the big picture. It's when you come to terms. When you, if you, one of the first things I did when I went to, to seminary was to have to read some of the documents of the early church fathers as they're grappling with the sheer wealth of information you find in the Bible about Jesus' nature. I mean, what is Jesus? Do you look at the Bible? Who is he? Is he just the man who grows weary and tired and sits by the, the well and asks for water from the women of Samaria? Or is he the one who has power over nature by walking on the water or by speaking to the storm and it stops or by raising Lazarus from the dead? What is he? Is he, is he a supernatural being? Is he simply human? Is he, when he claims to be God, God's voice, he that's seen me has seen the Father? What is, how do you put all of that together? What the church wrestled with for a long time was how to do that until eventually, after hard bargaining and struggling with the text of the Bible, the only way to nuance it was to say this. He is fully God. He is fully man. The two don't get mixed up. When he is being fully man, he is being fully man. He isn't sitting there in his mother's arms there we are, little Samuel was this afternoon sitting in his mother's arms. He's not sitting there in his mother's arms, looking out at the world the way some of these medieval paintings portray him like a grown-up person. You know, he's not saying after he's been nursed by his mother, bye, that was really good, and talking back to her. I mean, he's a baby at that point. Get that. He's fully human. And at the same time, he's running the universe as God. How do you put those things together? They're both there in the Bible. Very God, yet very man. And that's part of the way we come to theology, is to look at the big picture, interpret the whole by the parts, and the part by the whole. Well, this is what they do here. They look at the Bible, the apostolic word, the prophetic word, and they say, they use language like this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And they deliver a message. So that's them reaching a view. This is the way they did it. Then they formulate a principle. And the verdict was that Gentile believers do not have to have the Mosaic law imposed upon them, as I've said. And James makes that very clear. But then he adds a caveat. And I want you to see this caveat in verses 19 and 20. 
My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Literally, that they should abstain from the pollution of idols, or the defilement caused by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, the interesting thing, this message, when it was received by the Gentile Christians, was accepted by James, by Paul, by the Gentile Christians, with joy. In other words, they did not interpret this last bit as being a kind of reversal of the position. They didn't take this as being an instruction for them to keep the Mosaic law. It was received with joy. So how do we interpret it? I remember asking myself this question when I was about 14. It had been read, and I wasn't, I was, it had been preached on in our church, and I was unhappy with the solution. I didn't come up with the solution then, by the way, but you're going to hear it officially this evening. This is an ex-cathedra utterance. Because I tell you what, I tell you what it was. Here's, here's the, the solution that was arrived at. The solution back then was that, this, that these were kind of random uh, bits of instruction drawn from the holiness regulations that you find in Leviticus 17 and 18 that applied to both Jews and Gentile aliens and that what James was saying to these Christians was this. We don't expect you to become Jews in order to become Christians. We don't expect you to keep the law of Moses as well as believe in the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. But you know there are some things that offend your, Christian your, your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, so don't do those things, like eating blood. Well, as a Scotsman, having a blood sausage, black pudding, with your bacon and eggs in the morning, is a delight to some people. And uh, <laughs> so is that what he's saying? Well, it, it, if you read the list, if you read the list, I don't think, I don't think that these were matters of indifference. I don't think that what he's saying here are things that, they, that these Gentiles had to abstain from simply because they might offend their Jewish brothers and sisters. Sexual immorality, for example. You can do that so long as you don't offend your Jewish Christian brother or sister. That's not what he's saying, is it? So here's the thing. It is far more likely, given the list and the reaction of the Gentiles to the list, that these four practices constitute together a complex of pagan, idolatrous worship. Let me read it to you again in the language that is here. Abstain from the pollution of idols, the defilement caused by idols, in other words, in general. And that's the context of the sexual immorality and the things that are strangled and the blood. In other words, it's a reference to temple, pagan temple feasts, which were part and parcel of, of everyday life there. If you read uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, very early on, an early letter, not long after this event, you'll find that these temple feasts 
were part of the fabric of the business community in the ancient world. And what he's saying, what he's saying to these people is this. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, but you have to stop being a pagan to become a Christian. To become a Christian means a break with your old lifestyle. It means a, an end to the old relationships. You, you, were, you were a part of the club. You were a part of, of, the, uh, of the union, as it were. And as part of the club, part of the union, you went along to the idol feasts and, and you were part and parcel of the festivities there. You can't keep doing that if you are a Christian. All kinds of things happen there. Not only do you have... Uh, animals that are strangled in order to capture the life breath of the animal. Not only is the bloodshed in order that you can have the vitality of the blood, and not only is the, but there's also sexual immorality. The, the cult prostitutes are there plying their trade in order that the life power of, of the sexual act is, 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 is giving a buzz to everybody who's there. You don't go to those kinds of places anymore if you're a Christian. Do you understand? And that filled them with joy. They understood that. That wasn't a problem. This is, this is how Paul summarizes in another very early letter what it meant for people who were Gentiles to become Christians. We're told that they turned to God from idols. It uses the very same language here. We don't want to put an obstacle in the way of the Gentiles who are turning to God. They, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. But you have to stop being a pagan once you become a Christian. Now my question is, is there any relevance to this principle that's established then to the church today? And I want to give you an illustration this evening that I think uh, demonstrates that there is a very relevant application of this principle to the church today. Let me use the illustration of what is known in uh, missionary circles as the insider movement. The insider movement, I want to look at it from a Muslim context. An insider, as I understand it, is someone who considers Jesus as their Lord and Savior, yet who stays inside their culture, in this case the Muslim culture, inside their biological family, what they define as their oikos or household, oikos is a Greek word meaning household, continues to call themselves a Muslim as defined in Surah 5.111 and therefore says and believes the shahada, that is, God is one and Muhammad is, is his prophet, continues to go to the mosque, prays five times a day, participates in the Ramadan fast, and some insiders say can go on the Hajj, the, prince of the pilgrimage. Now, the various variations of this, but that is a, an overview of what the insider movement is saying. In other words, encourage people in Islamic countries that they can come to Christ, but they don't have to come out when they come to Christ. They can stay involved in their old life as long as they as long as they want. And the argument for this, can I say the argument for this that's put forward by those who argue for it, is that it is an attractive model because it has been leading to an immense number of converts coming to Christ. Lots of numbers are bandied about. I don't know whether any of them are, are, are right. Uh, numbers I've heard are from 100,000 to millions who have come to Christ through this methodology. 
Now, I have a problem with it on a number of levels. I mean, I think the argument from numbers justifies everything in the world, of course. The end justifies the means. It's seductive. Success is always attractive, regardless of the cost. It's dangerous because it leads to blindly adopting practices without looking at the long-term long consequences of those practices for the worldwide Christian church and for the local Christian church, people like them who are living in the same context as them. So how would we evaluate this insider movement using the, the principles of Acts 15? Well, I think we would look to the Scriptures, wouldn't we? We'd look to the Gospels, we'd look to the Old Testament, We'd, we'd, we'd look, for example, at the way that Jesus redefines family in Matthew chapter 12. When he points to the disciples, you remember, and he says, people have come and said, you know, here's your family coming, your mother and your brothers and so on. And Jesus says, no, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. People who are converted out of a Muslim background therefore have a stronger relationship to their Christian brothers and sisters and Christian culture than with their own families. In the insider principle, they maintain the strength of their relationship with their families without ever identifying with their local Christian community. And they miss out on this wonderful picture Jesus paints of the relationship we can have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only that, but their biological Muslim relatives, especially when they're persecuted by their biological families, they need the support of their near brothers and sisters in Christ. Or take this principle from Matthew chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus talks about us lighting a lamp and then putting the lamp under the bowl. He's talking about our witness, the stand we take. And he says, you, if, you, if you're going to take a stand for him, you don't, you don't experience the light of God in your life and then take it and hide it. You don't pretend that you haven't become a Christian. You don't put a, suppress your Christian testimony in, in that way. Don't light. Uh, light confronts darkness. That is the, the inevitable thing. Becoming a Christian inevitably leads to a confrontation with the powers of darkness. We've seen this all over the book of Acts. We see it for the first 300 years of the Christian church throughout Europe. There's a confrontation with the powers of darkness. Or, or return to this idea of one's oikos, one's family. I mean, if you, com if you combine Matthew 5.15 with Matthew 10, which clearly says that once we are Jesus' disciples, we can expect to find a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household, his own oikos. What that tells me is that our true family is no longer our biological family, but the family we have in Christ. Interestingly, a believer from a Muslim background in London said recently, what are the insiders saying to the hundreds of believers like me who have obeyed Matthew 5.15 and have refused to keep our faith in Christ hidden or under a bowl, have been salt and light to our families, have refused to compromise by claiming to be what we are not? That is still a Muslim 
And as a result have been persecuted for our obedience, tortured, some of us even killed, yet have a strengthened faith because of our extraction, which has led to persecution, and now are blessed by inclusion into a worldwide family. You see, in the New Testament, the reason why these Christians were told to abstain from idolatry and the pollutions of idolatry were that false religion is not a neutral thing. It never is a neutral thing. It is always a satanic thing. It always is driven by the powers of darkness. All error and evil in the world is satanic in its origin. There are powers of darkness that can be identified, for example, with Islam because it is a false religion. Not only is there the especially strong control that Muslim families have over those who are part of the family, emotionally, socially, and physically, but there's also the false teaching of Islam. There's the power of darkness. When uh, some of these insider teachers talk about the Koran as one of the four authoritative God-breathed books, you begin to see that they're losing the plot altogether. You cannot have four God-breathed books when one of them denies what the other one is saying. God then contradicts himself all over the place. What's more problematic from a biblical perspective is the fact that Muhammad does not qualify in any way uh, in any of the four biblical criteria for the office of a prophet. He was not in the prophetic race via Isaac's line. He did nothing to prove he was a prophet, neither a miracle nor a prophecy. His revelations contradicted previous and later biblical revelation concerning Jesus Christ. And he never even knew in his, all of his writings the personal name of God that was known by all of the prophets and by the Lord Jesus. Yahweh is a name he did not even know. What we have to say about Muhammad is, in the language of Moses in Deuteronomy, a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. Lastly, advocates of the insider movement, like emergent church leaders, often distinguish between pure Christianity and the Christianity of the church with its offensive post-apostolic language like Trinity. We have to say that that is what we find being enacted here in Acts 15 as people see the big picture and then draw conclusions from it. So they're formulating a principle that salvation is in Christ alone, not Christ plus Turning to God means turning away from all past allegiances at whatever cost. Lastly, we find them encouraging the saints. And they encourage the saints, do you notice, by doing what? By greeting them as brothers. Do you notice the word brothers occurs twice in verse 23? The authors of the letter writing to the recipients of the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings, underlining this new relationship that has taken place. They've left the world, they've left their old relationships, they've come into this new relationship, a new family. They have, and by the way, the use of this word brother in this context is very significant because normally the Jews referred to each other as brothers and sisters, stressing their common ancestry in Abraham. 
And when these Jewish Christian leaders write to Gentile Christian friends and call them their brothers, they're saying, you belong to Abraham as much as we do. You belong to Abraham by virtue of the fact that you share the faith of Abraham. In the language that Paul uses in Galatians, as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is where your brotherhood lies. So they greeted them as brothers. They exposed the disturbers of the peace as false. We heard that some people have come to unsettling your minds. Well, they didn't come from us, they say. They commended the messengers as colleagues, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, the others. And they underlined the unity behind the decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We were of one mind, one accord. This is the church's position. And they encouraged the believers there. So here's this great principle, isn't it? Here they are arriving at this view. This is uh, the way the church works together at its best. It's a deliberative process of thinking over the scriptures of the Old and the New Covenant looking at the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures, seeing them together as one Christian book, reviewing them, interpreting them. As you think about God, as you think about the world, as you think about your life, as you think about the questions we face, using the scripture in this way to do so. And through it all, what is the purpose? The purpose is that we might know that we're part of this great new Israel of God. We're part of this new thing that God is doing in the world and that as Christians, we are not isolated. We're not doing this on our own. We're not solo practitioners of this Christian life. We're part of the body, the church. And I promise you, that's us done with chapter 15. And we can move on. But it's one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. And it sets us up for the whole of the last 2,000 years of church history and for the next however long till Jesus comes again. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would please take your word and that you would apply it to us, encouraging us to know that we live our Christian lives not as solo players, but as part of an orchestra conducted by him who is our great Savior, leader, the Lord Jesus. And as we each play our part, as we contribute to that great symphony of your grace in the world, we pray that you would make us effective and useful together as one body for the praise of your glory. Amen.